morning. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. It's kind of kind of fun to be here on a Christmas morning. We, uh, as a family, we got up this morning and did our gifts and had spent some time together. And I think the kids had French toast and all that. So a little bit of an early morning, but. We usually get up pretty early in, on Christmas Day, and so it was kind of in the flow of the day. Angie and I were talking about it on the way here, been sort of in the flow of the day, and that we would come and be a part of the body of Christ. We would definitely not think of it being anywhere else other than here. Well, good morning again, and welcome to Grace Bible Church. We are here this Christmas morning to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As Christians, we recognize, we should recognize the reason for the day, right? I mean, this is the reason for the day, Christmas, the reason why we observe Christmas is it's a time for us to remember and proclaim the Lord's birth. It's not the only day that we can do that, right? We don't just proclaim the Lord's birth on Christmas, but, but we have the special opportunity as a church to do so. And then having church service on a Christmas morning uh, really highlights that opportunity. Christmas is also a time to take a break from the hustle and the bustle of the world to gather with your family and with your loved ones. Every, As I said, every few years, uh, the, the Christmas does fall on Sunday, and it seems to create this conflict between those two great purposes. As we were driving to church this morning, as we were driving to church, we saw that you know some churches have closed their doors. I mean, they just, they're not going to be there. Yet at Grace Bible Church, we don't see that as an option. As long as you're willing to come and, and be here, I'm certainly willing to prepare and preach on a Christmas morning, and I'm certainly going to do so. And so I, I think, I think you know, at Grace Bible Church, we believe it's absolutely critical that we gather to proclaim the truth of God's Word. And truly, we believe that only the families that center their lives on the gospel will have you know, enduring and unending happiness, if you think about it. If you think about it, those who say, you know, when you really think about getting it out of balance, if you think about, you know, making the, the family versus the, you know, Chris or versus church, you start going in that direction, you, you lose the foundation. You lose the foundation. Foundation of the, of the word. You know, it's interesting that J.C. Ryle says this. He says, our family gatherings on earth must have an end one day. Have you ever thought about that? You ever thought about that? Um, yeah, that's something that's been on my heart. That, you know, one day, you know, our family gatherings are going to come, come to an end. He says, he goes on to say, our last earthly Christmas must come. Happy indeed is that Christmas which finds us prepared to meet God, end quote. What a beautiful, what a beautiful quote. If this is true, and I believe it is, then it only makes sense for believers to gather on Christmas Day to proclaim the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, it is a very good thing in the Christian life to stand back periodically and look at God's great plan. That is why I think it is important for us to observe Christmas Day, and he goes on to say, and Good Friday and Easter, and to preach on those days. So, I mean, we, we're taking an opportunity to preach because we're preaching God's great plan here today. 
Church, I hope you see that when we gather on Christmas, we proclaim to our families and to a watching world that Jesus, our Lord, is truly the reason for this, for the Christmas holiday, the reason, as people say, for the season. It's on Christmas that we celebrate that God became man. Theologians call that the incarnation. I would call it the most critical doctrine. Friends, if God did not become man, then we are still dead in our sins. Matthew 1, 22 and 23, Matthew quotes the, the prophet Isaiah saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Beloved, the wonder of Christmas is that the one true God came to dwell with sinful man. He tabernacled with sinful man. Arkit Hughes says, the baby Mary carried was not a Caesar, a man who would become a God, but a far greater wonder, the true God who had become a man. You see, Jesus was perfect deity who became perfect humanity. He did this so that we, He would become the perfect sacrifice for our sins. I love the words of Spurgeon. Infinite and an infant eternal and yet born of a woman, almighty and yet hanging on a woman's breast, supporting a universe and yet needing to be carried in a mother's arms, king of angels and yet the reputed son of Joseph, heir of all things and yet the carpenter's despised son. Church, I want you to take, I want to take the next few minutes to consider the reason for our hope and joy on this Christmas day. I believe our hope and joy are found in the humanity and the deity of Christ. So today we're going to walk through briefly Luke's account of our Lord's birth. And in Luke 2, what we're going to see is Luke's going to give us the reason for the hope and joy of Christmas. We, find, we will find true hope and joy in first, the humanity of Jesus our Savior, and second, the deity of Jesus our Savior. Let me pray as we get started this morning. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would be with us. Lord, I pray for this church that Lord, we would truly look to you and we would just reflect this morning upon what you've accomplished by sending your Son to be born in a manger. Father, ultimately to go to the cross. May we get just a, a little better understanding of that truth this morning. In Christ's name, Amen. Now before we consider our text and outline for the day, let me briefly bring, it, bring us up to speed. Last week, Keith, walked us through the account of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. In that account, Keith showed us the need for hope. I don't think we can overstate the cataclysmic nature of the sin of Adam. In Romans 5.12, Paul tells us that through one man, sin, sin entered the world and death through sin. And as a result of that one sin, death has spread to all men because all have sinned. Just think of it. According to Scripture, 
every sin, every death, and every bit of suffering are a direct result of Adam's sin. Ever, every sin ever committed can be traced back to that one sin. Every death every, ever recorded can be attributed to, to Adam's actions in the garden. All the suffering ever to occur on this earth can be blamed on the fall of man into sin. You see, sin, suffering, and death are Adam's ugly trifecta. Not only that, in Romans 8, Paul says that God subjected the whole creation to futility because of Adam's sin in the garden. So every natural disaster is a result of the fall. That's what Romans 8, 21 and 8, 22. In, or 8, 20, 20 and 21. In Romans 8, 22, Paul simply says that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. And you can, all you have to do is look around to see that. You just have to look around to see the suffering. You have to look, all you have to do is look around to see uh, the, this sin-fallen world. You, shouldn't be, you can't be blind to it. Truly, every bit of suffering can be traced to Adam's sin. That's what the Scripture says. Again, we cannot overstate these things. Just a few hours of life in this world reveals the depth of the pain. Yet, as Keith pointed out last week, as we read the account of man's fall, God gives us a glimmer of hope. In Genesis 3.15, we've seen it several times uh, over the past few weeks and months. As God cursed Satan, the serpent of old, he gave an incredible promise to mankind. You see, we can see the effects of the fall everywhere we look. We can see the fall's effects in the created order and in man's love for his sin. We can also see it every time we witness the death of, of men, women, and even children. Yet as God cursed the serpent, He promised a coming seed. The seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. This promise foretells of one who would redeem mankind and fully restore man's relationship with God, his Creator. Man again would again walk in fellowship with his Maker. And as amazing as that is, and as amazing as that sounds, there are a couple of verses in Genesis 3 that give us further insight into what God would do to cover man's sin. In Genesis 3.20, Moses says that Adam called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. You see, God had promised, God had said, He would surely die. Despite the truth that man was born to die because of Adam's sin, God would actually bless man with life. The profound nature of that truth couldn't have been fully understood at that moment, yet we see a glimmer of hope in that verse. God would not leave us in that position. God would not leave us in our sin. The question was, how would He accomplish this? How would He accomplish this? Well, Genesis 3.21, God gives us a glimpse of that answer. The text says that Yahweh God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and He clothed them. In the midst of that cataclysmic tragedy, God clothed Adam and Eve. Now, I would argue that this is the kind of statement that makes the Bible ring true. Why would Moses give us that information? In the midst of all of that, why would he say that he clothed them? Well, animal skins, as you know, come from 
dead animals. God used the skins to make coverings for Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness. Those animals would have been the first deaths after the fall. In other words, the animals physically died instead of Adam and Eve. They died to cover Adam and Eve's sin. You may, you may recall that Moses wrote Genesis, if you don't, I'll, I'm telling you, that Moses wrote Genesis during Israel's 40-year wilderness journey. You may also remember that the tabernacle accompanied Israel wherever they went. And, and the question then, what was the purpose of the tabernacle? Well, the Israelites sacrificed animals to Yahweh, the one true God. Those, sacrifice, those sacrifices were, were given to cover their sin. Uh, this is the idea of what theologians call substitutionary atonement. I would argue that all those sacrifices in the temple pointed back to that first garden sacrifice. But they also point forward to a much greater sacrifice. A sacrifice that would truly atone for man's sin. You see, all those sacrifices, including the ones in the garden, could not actually cover man's sin. Jumping forward to the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews states it simply. He says, for it is impossible, this is Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Truly, there was no hope to be found in the sacrifice of ordinary animals. Again, the writer of Hebrews is, is helpful. He says that for the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Put simply, the law, along with the sacrifices, could never have covered the sin, their sin. You see, they offered those sacrifices year after year as a reminder of their sins, of the, of the reminder of their, of, of their need. And the writer says those words almost exactly in 10.3, but when he says in Hebrews 10.3, but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year. Now let me sum this all up. In the garden, man fell into sin. Everywhere you look in the world, there is the cataclysmic result of that fall. You, you can't deny it, or you can, but, uh, but if you look, and you, you look and you look at this world, you can see it everywhere. Yet, in that event, God gave a glimmer of hope. He promised a future seed, the offspring of the woman. He promised that this future seed would defeat Satan and restore a man to a right relationship with him. He also clothed their nakedness, pointing to a time when their sin would be fully atoned. Now, I hope you're asking what this has to do with Christmas. Well, in the next few minutes, I want to do my best to explain that connection. And in doing so, I, can ho I hope to tell you why we can have hope and joy on this Christmas day. So turn to Luke 2. Where, as I said earlier, Luke gives us two reasons for the hope we find hope that we find hope and joy in Christmas. First, we find hope and joy. We can find hope and joy because of the humanity of Jesus, our Savior. Look at Luke two, verses one through seven, starting in verse one. Now, as we walk through this passage, here's what I want you to see. First, I want you to see the, the humanity of Jesus' birth. Look at Luke 2.1. Now it happened that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus for a census to be taken of all the inhabited earth. 
This was the first census taken while Quirinius was the governor, was governor of Syria. Now history tells us that Caesar Augustus was a, a real man. He actually existed in time and in history, and he lived from 63 B.C. to A.D. 14, according to historians. According to Luke, uh, this man called a, for a census to be taken of all the inhabited earth. His decree began a regular census that would occur every 14 years. Now, prior to that, the Jews were exempt from the census because they didn't serve in the Roman army. But this new census numbered each nation in the Roman Empire. Look at your text in verse 3. Now, it's again, we see, we see this happening in real history. Everyone was going to be registered for the census, each to his own city. You see, Caesar's decree forced everyone to be registered according to their tribal origin. Look at your text in verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. So the, the, the decree forced Joseph, Mary's husband, to travel to Bethlehem so that he could be counted with the house and family of David. Now, all of these things, again, happened within the course of human history. The, these events can be traced in history and in archaeology. I mean, we can see what truly happened or what happened in history. Now, I want you to consider the humanity of this situation. All these things occurred in normal, th in normal ways. I mean, it, there wasn't anything necessarily special about these things. We see these kind of things happening throughout history. From that point of view, these events are not, are not that extraordinary. Look at verse 5. So Joseph traveled there in order to register along with Mary, who was betrothed to him and was with child. Now, in Matthew chapter 1, we learn that Joseph and Mary were betrothed when she was found to be pregnant. So they were already uh, planning to become married. The, therefore, the child could not have been Joseph's. As a result, he planned to send her away secretly. That's what it says in Matthew 1, 1, 19 and 20. But an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the one who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So Joseph took Mary as his wife. Uh, in other words, he took her into his home. Therefore, Joseph took Mary with him on this journey to Bethlehem. Now, picking up in Luke chapter 2, verse 6, Now it happened that while they were there, the days were fulfilled for her to give birth. So, so it was uh, Caesar's decree for a census that caused Joseph to return to Bethlehem where Jesus was to be born. Now keep reading in verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the guest room, is what the, the Legacy Standard Bible says. Uh, she gave birth, look, look at the first verse, or the first part of that verse. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths. First, I want you to notice that this was Mary's firstborn, her first offspring. Now we know that Mary and Joseph had not had normal marital relations at this point. Therefore, this fulfilled God's promise that of one who would come who would be the seed of the woman. We saw that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, on a side note, the fact that, that Luke calls Jesus Mary's firstborn presupposes that Mary and Joseph went on to have a normal marriage with multiple children. But I want you to notice something else here. 
Notice that she wrapped him in cloths. Now, these were strips of cloth, the cloths that bound the baby and kept it from injuring itself. These, these tight cloths had a soothing effect on the baby. Now, I want you to think, just think about this. Think about the utter humanity of that, of that situation. Uh, this baby was fully human in every way. There was, in, in that sense, there was nothing special about this baby's birth. In that sense, at least. Look back at your text in verse 7. And she laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the guest room. Again, that's what the Legacy Standard Bible tra translates. Prior, prior translations have said that there was no room or place for them in, at the inn or in the inn. Now, I believe, I believe the Legacy Standard Bible captures Luke's intent. Most likely, Joseph and Mary stayed with family in Bethlehem. Because of the census, there was no room in the main living area because there were so, so many people in town for the, for the census, so there was no room for them in the main living area. So they stayed in the part of the house or the dwelling where the, the animals were housed. Jesus then was born among the family's animals. Again, I want you to consider the humanity of that situation. Jesus was not born with attendants. Most likely, it was just Mary and Joseph. Now, Jesus wasn't born in a, in a castle. He, he wasn't even born in the main part of the house. Jesus was born among the common animals. As I said earlier, these are the kind of details that, that make the Bible ring true. If, if this were a man, we wouldn't, I don't think we would see those types of details. Jesus would not have been born in such mean circumstances. As the songwriter asked, as we, we sing every year, why lies he in such mean estate? You see, Luke's birth announcement defies all human reasoning. If left to man, we would multiply the words. We, we would add to the event to make it seem more important, and in doing so, we would use words and descriptions to impress men. If left to man's devices, the king of kings would be born in a castle, not a stable. He would be laid in a, a, a golden crib, not in a wooden manger. He would be attended by many servants not born in the presence of his parents along with some common animals found in the stable. He would be given an immaculate room with all the proper appointments. He certainly would not be among the muck of, of just common farm animals. Philippians 2, verse 6 and 7, Paul writes, Paul writes that although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God to a thing to be grasped. In other words, in his incarna incarnation, Jesus didn't take hold of his deity, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave. He was made in the likeness of men like you and I. In other words, he became human flesh. And He dwelled among us. Beloved, I, I hope in all of this you see the utter humanity of Jesus' incarnation. Jesus emptied Himself. Jesus, the Son of God, emptied Himself and became a man in human flesh. At no time, let me make sure you understand this, at no time did He become less than God. You see, Paul is careful to say that he existed in the form of God, yet he emptied himself and was made in the likeness of men. 
The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, the Son of God, passed through the heavens and experienced our world just like we experience it. No difference. No different. He was our great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Do you get the point? He was tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. That's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, 4 14 and 15. Uh, friends, if you're here today and you're... You can have, I want you to know that you can have true hope and joy this Christmas because of the humanity of Christ. Because He truly, He is our great high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. He has experienced this world as we experience this world, yet without sin. Yet without sin. Secondly, we can have true hope and joy this morning. And this Christmas, because of the deity of Jesus, our Savior. You see, while that birth was like any other birth, the the humanity of the situation, it was unlike any other birth because of who He is. Look at verse 8. Luke 2, verse 8. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. These shepherds were were around Bethlehem, which located, which was located a little less than seven miles from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. You see, the, the, these shepherds represented one of the most, you know, one of the more contemptible elements of Jewish society. They were separated from human society for long stretches. They were subjected to suspicion and scorn. They were suspected by the the rabbis of practicing what they called the craft of robbers. One. Third century rabbi stated, There is no more despised occupation in the world than that of shepherds. They were counted with uh, the tax collectors and, and with gamblers. They, they were the lowest of the low. Look at verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9, Luke 2, 9. And an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. The, the, the text doesn't give the name of this angel, but I would lean toward Gabriel being the one. Luke very simply says that an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. Now, I want you to imagine for for just a moment, these shepherds were tending their flocks. Uh, It would have been just this ordinary scenario. They had been doing this for hundreds and hundreds of years, and yet this faithful night, there was something completely, there was something that happened that was completely out of the, the ordinary, this angel stood before them, and the text says that these men were terribly frightened. Terribly frightened. You see, God had given them a glimpse of His glory. Now earlier we considered the humanity of the Lord Jesus. Now I want you to consider His deity. As we consider the, the babe in the manger, it's easy to see His humanity, but we need to recognize that that Luke, by describing the glory of the Lord, he also presents Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The text, the text says that the, the shepherds were terribly frightened. In Scripture, you know, witnesses and of God's glory are always described in this way. Just think of Isaiah when God gave him a vision of the temple. Just think of Saul on the road of, to Damascus when the Lord Jesus appeared to him. Just think of uh, the disciples when Jesus was transfigured before them on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. Uh, Just think of John when 
Jesus appeared to him on the island of Patmos, he, he fell like a dead man. Clearly, Luke wants us to recognize that while Jesus was an ordinary baby in, in every way, yet this was not an, an ordinary baby. You see, he was fully human, yet fully God. He was ordinary, yet extraordinary at the same time. Let me give you one other thought. According to the Mishnah, the livestock around Bethlehem would have been reserved for sacrifice in the temple. Put simply, these, these shepherds may have been raising sheep for sacrifices in the temple. So the angels appeared, or the angel appeared to the men who were raising animals for sacrifice to tell them that the one true and perfect sacrifice for man's sin had arrived. Reminds me of the words of John the Baptist in John 1.29. On the next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In just a few years and a few miles away, Jesus would become the perfect sacrifice for our sins. The babe in the, in the manger would be led to slaughter. He would shed his blood on the cross to redeem us from our sins. Look back at your text in Luke 2, verse 10 and 11. But the angel said to them, to the shepherds, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. In these verses, the angel reveals that Jesus, that baby in the manger, is actually Christ the Lord. That's a divine title. He is the divine Messiah. The, the one that they had been looking for. The angel revealed that He is the Lord. And that, that, was, uh, they, that, that was unexpected by many. They didn't expect a divine Messiah. They expected a, a, a military Messiah maybe, or, or, or a, a, just a mere man. But they didn't expect that this, uh, this Messiah would be divine. This babe in the manger was not only the Messiah, He was the sovereign Lord of all creation. The Old, the Old Testament authors had prophesied from the beginning of a Messiah who would take away the sins of the world and restore mankind to a right relationship with God. From the time of Adam and Eve all the way to Noah, from Abraham to Joseph, from Moses to David, from the prophets all the way to John the Baptist, throughout Israel's history, they had, the God had maintained a faithful remnant who expected a coming Redeemer, who expected a Messiah, who expected uh, the Christ. Now I want you to notice something in verse 10. It says, I will bring you good news of great joy. You see, that the coming of this baby is, is good news. It's gospel. It's, it brings great joy. You see, the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus coming, uh, the, the good news of the Son of God being born as a man, uh, this, this news brings great joy. In this verse, the angel brings this good news to the shepherds, yet it will be according to the angel for all the people. For all the people. In Luke's gospel and in Acts, Luke makes it clear that the gospel is is for the Jews, but it's also for the Gentiles, all the peoples. It is for you, it is for me. In Matthew 28, Jesus made it 
made it clear that his followers were to make disciples of all the nations. The humble baby lying in the manger is the divine uh, Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. That's what the, the, angels proclaim, the angel proclaimed to the, to the shepherds. He is God, very God. Just listen to the words again of Spurgeon. Spurgeon says, Jesus, Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth is God. He was conceived in the womb of the virgin and born in Bethlehem's manger. He is now and always was God over all, blessed forever. There is no gospel if He be not God. It is no news to me to tell me that a great prophet is born. There have never been great prophets before, but or there have been great prophets before, but the world has never been redeemed from evil by mere testimony to the truth and never will be. Tell me that God is born, that God Himself has espoused our nature, a, a human nature, and taken into, taken into union with Himself. Then bells of my heart ring merry peals, for now I come to, know, to God since God has come to me." End quote. In the title of this series, we teased that we would give you the hope and joy of Christmas. Also, I promised I would tie this back to Genesis 3, so let me see if we can do what we promised. I should remind you that in the garden, man fell into sin, throwing our world into chaos. We see it everywhere in this dark world. We see suffering, sickness, and death. We, we try to cover these things up. We try to run from them. We try to defeat them. Yet suffering, sickness, and death are ever-present companions in this dark world. And in that grave situation in the garden, after Adam had uh, rebelled against Yahweh, Yahweh gave a glimmer of hope that would bring great joy to all the peoples. He promised a future seed. He promised the offspring of the woman. He promised that this, this one would be man's redeemer. He would defeat Satan, and he would restore man to a right relationship with his Creator. You may also recall in Genesis 3.20 where Adam called his wife his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Despite the truth that man was born to die because of Adam's sin, God would bless mankind with life. Earlier I told you the profound nature of that truth could not have been fully understood by Adam and Eve. Yet the, we see a glimmer of hope in that verse because because of Genesis 3.21. Genesis 3.21 gives us the reason for our hope and the reason for our joy. You may recall that Yahweh God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. I told you that this sacrifice pointed to a much greater one to come. Now I want you to notice three critical words. You may not be there, but if you, if you want to turn to Genesis 3.21, I'm going to show you three critical words. He clothed them. He clothed them. Yahweh God clothed them. Beloved, only Yahweh God could have truly covered their nakedness. Only Yahweh God could have truly covered their sin. The prophet Isaiah gives us this insight, or the insight we need to make the connection. Prophet Isaiah, and I read this last night if you were here, Isaiah 61.10, I will rejoice greatly in Yahweh, my soul will rejoice in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Friends, 
Only God can cover your sin. Your own righteousness won't do it. At this point, I should remind you that the shepherds were likely raising animals used for sacrifice in the temple. Earlier, I quoted the writer of Hebrews who said that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away our sins. It would take a much greater sacrifice to accomplish that. It is, a, it is profound to think that the angel announced the coming of the one who would become the only sacrifice we need. The writer of Hebrews says that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And he says these wonderful words, once for all. Church, the hope and the joy of Christmas is that God our Creator became man. Full humanity. He dwelt among us. He became one of us so that we can now dwell with Him. Again, in the words of Spurgeon, he says, man became royal when Christ became human. Man was exalted when Christ was humiliated. Man may go up to God now that God has come down to man. End quote. Let me give you an even greater reason for our hope and joy. In coming to the earth as a man, Jesus, the Son of God, also crushed the power of sin and death, having defeated them at the cross. The writer of Hebrews, again, is helpful. He says, says this, Hebrews 10, 11-13, And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifice which can, sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies are put as a footstool for his feet. Church, it is in these truths that we can find true hope and joy this Christmas morning. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I pray that you will believe in Him. Scripture says that, scripture says that you are dead in your transgressions and sins and that you walk according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, according to the Spirit that is now uh, working among the sons of disobedience. Scripture tells us that in, in Ephesians 2, Paul says that, that you are conducting yourselves in the lust of your flesh, doing the desires of your flesh and the desires of your mind, and because of that, you are nature by nature children of wrath. But here's the great promise. Here's the great promise. God is merciful. God is merciful. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, speaking to the believer, even when we are dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. If you're here today and you don't know Him, you are now dead in your transgressions and sins. But He can make you alive because He's a merciful God if only you would believe. Paul even says, by grace you are saved. And not only will He save you, but here's a great promise for you. He will raise you up with Him and seat you with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
What an amazing promise. It's a promise that comes through faith. Because he says later on in Ephesians 2 8, for by grace you are saved. By grace you are saved. This not of yourselves, it is a gift, the gift of God, not of work so that no one may boast. It's all about belief. It's all about belief. He's provided the way. That Christmas, that first Christmas morning, when the shepherds heard of this birth, they went, they went and they saw what, what, the, the, what the angel had promised. God had fulfilled His promises. He had provided His own Son so that He might go to the cross, so that He might crush the power of sin and, sin and death. And that promise can be yours if you would only believe this morning. What a wonderful promise it is. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning and praise You You have truly provided the way. Jesus said Himself, John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by Me. Lord, I pray that we would believe that, that it would be our mainstay, that that truth would be our mainstay, that we would trust in You for the rest of our lives. Father, I pray for those here that don't know You, that you would break through to them. Father, I pray that you would save, that you would give them ears to hear, even this morning, even on this Christmas day, that you would give them the greatest gift of all, the gift of the Lord Jesus, the gift of salvation in him. We pray this in his name. Amen.